This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's just me. We're going to dive deep into the two NBA playoff games that occurred tonight, Monday, May 1st. The first game is the Philadelphia 76ers surprisingly defeating the Boston Celtics 119-115 to without Joel Embiid behind a tremendous 45-point performance by James Harden. The second game we're going to talk about was an absolute slog. It was a disaster mess, trash fire. Uh, I don't even know that this was a great defensive game on one hand, at the very least. I do think Denver played particularly well defensively, especially after Chris Paul went out, but Denver beats the Phoenix suns in an ugly 97 to 87 affair that, Oh boy. Oh boy, that uh, that, that was a messy one to watch. The moment that I knew that was going to be an ugly game was when Devin Booker bricked an open transition three without even hitting the rim at the 6.30 mark of the first quarter. There was just something in the air, something that went beyond analysis at that point in the game that said you knew that this was going to be a disaster. You knew this was going to be an absolute shit show of a basketball game. And it was fun to watch because holy shit, it was a shit show. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about that one later on, though. I thought the bigger story of the night, all due respect to the Denver Nuggets, was the Philadelphia 76ers going into Boston, much like the Florida Panthers did, and beating the Boston Celtics, the top-seeded remaining team in the Eastern Conference. The fact that they did this without Joel Embiid is staggering, should be staggering to everybody, and should be especially staggering to the Boston Celtics, given how well they played offensively in this game. They shot 59% from the field. They shot 39% from three and 94% from the foul line. Uh, There was a bit of a turnover issue, particularly Marcus Smart had six, Jalen Brown had four. But this was a game where they shot particularly well and a big piece of that was early on in the first half I believe there was like five minutes left in the first half when I checked this number there was a point in this game where the Boston Celtics were 18 for 20 from two-point range they were 18 for 20 from two-point range and the way that they were doing it was the Philadelphia came out and they were drastically overplaying everything 
They were trying to play heavy denial to Jason Tatum. They were trying to play heavy denial to Jalen Brown and trying to make everybody else on the roster beat them. The problem was that when you play heavy denial, you open yourself up for back cuts. And when you open yourself up for back cuts, you need to have a great rim protector back there. Tonight, the 76ers did not have Joel Embiid. They had Paul Reed. And as fun as B-Ball Paul is, and as much as I enjoy watching him try different shit on the basketball court, B-Ball Paul was not an effective rim protector tonight. The Celtics got whatever they wanted around the basket. It was not an issue for them at all. And especially in the first half, Jason Tatum, particularly, I think he had three or four back cut buckets, got easy baskets and he got going and he got, I think he had 18 in the second quarter. He was an absolute beast uh, when he got rolling there. But between him and Jalen Brown, they got 62 points. Malcolm Brogdon went for 20 points in this game. They still didn't win. And that's because James Harden absolutely took their soul tonight. And it was remarkable. I, I don't know that I didn't think James Harden could do that. I think James Harden often gets a little bit misconstrued in terms of his playoff success. It is not quite at the level of what his regular season success is, but that's only because he has a case as being a top 15 to 20 offensive player in NBA history in the regular season. He is that good offensively if you look at the numbers. The thing is that when he gets to the playoffs, it's just a little bit less. And because he was the number one option for so many years in Houston, and because Houston ran into so many difficult teams, particularly the one that stands out is the historic Golden State Warriors team that uh, I believe they pushed to seven games and Chris Paul got injured. Unfortunately, I believe he had a hamstring injury. That will be a theme of tonight's show, it seems like, given Chris Paul's current groin status. It feels like people kind of underplay some of the games that James Harden has had. Nobody's sitting here saying James Harden is some elite playoff player, but he does have games like this in his past in the playoffs. James Harden dropped 45 in the Western Conference Finals against the Golden State Warriors in 2015. In the first round against Oklahoma City, he dropped 44. In the first round against Minnesota in 2018, he dropped 44. He's had a lot of these games. He's actually had nine 40-point games in the playoffs before tonight. Now, I would argue that I don't think he's had a bigger one. I think there is a real case that this is James Harden's best playoff game ever. If you look back through the history, maybe you would say... uh, you know, the, the 45.9 rebound, five assist game against Golden State in that 2015 uh, Western Conference Finals, where he's going up against Draymond Green, Stephen Curry, Harrison Barnes, Andrew Bogut, Clay Thompson, obviously. Th- that is a real case here. I- I'm not going to sit here and deny that. He's playing with Josh Smith. He's playing with Jason Terry. Similar to tonight, he was undermanned. That didn't matter tonight. James Harden was absolutely unbelievable in this game. And I think a big part of why is the way that Boston defended him. Boston, I think, gave him 
too many easy looks throughout this game. I think that Boston, with its lack of adjustment in terms of the way that they were playing him in ball screens, allowed James Harden to manipulate them and get what he wanted on the court. Typically, defensively, you want to try and disrupt what the offensive player is doing. That goes without saying, but the goal is typically to try and get the offensive player out of rhythm, to try and make life a little bit harder, to try and give him different looks, or if the look is working, to try and continue with that same look. Boston didn't do any of that. They let him dictate the pace. They let him dictate the matchups that he wanted. And that's why James Harden went for 45 in this game. It's because whenever James Harden can control and dictate the tempo of a game, he's going to be remarkably successful. That's what it comes down to. That's who James Harden is. He is one of the best ball screen players we've ever seen in NBA history. And I think that on that note, it's worth us diving into the tape here because James Harden tonight, I thought was absolutely spectacular in the way that he manipulated Boston's defenders. This is the one. This got him to three for three on the night, I believe. The first two were little mid-range, mid-range jumpers. This one is the one where I was like, oh, we're in for something tonight. What you're going to notice here, you're going to notice a step-up screen from Paul Reed, his hips parallel to the foul line, parallel to the baseline. He's going to set this little step up. And Marcus Smart just goes a little bit too deep into the paint. James Harden steps back, gets it. He's in a rhythm at this point already. I believe this is seven points on three shots in four minutes of this game. As you see, Joel Embiid, very happy. Again, you're going to see Paul Reed throw this ball out to James Harden. This is at the 745 mark of the first quarter. And again, a nice, beautiful little step-up screen from Paul Reed. I thought when Paul Reed was asked to do step-up screens as opposed to normal ball screens that are perpendicular to the baseline. I thought Paul Reed did a very good job screening as we'll see later on. I think that some of his other screens were particularly poor, which made it even more impressive that James Harden got loose. But I think that in these moments, what you're going to see here is that there were a lot of Paul Reed step up screens that made it a little bit harder for Boston to defend. So here James Harden calmly knocks down another three. That's four for four at this point, 741 left in the first quarter. Here, we're at 310 left in the first quarter now. And James Harden has the ball on the outside. He's going to take just a little ghost screen from Jalen McDaniels. I always confuse the Jalen and Jaden. This is Jalen on the Philadelphia 76ers. And another thing that Boston did throughout the course of this game, is you saw in the first two clips, Al Horford dropped. In those first two clips, that was drop coverage from the step up screen from Paul Reed. Al Horford sank into the paint. They wanted to let James Harden beat them early from three. Then by this point at the three minute mark of the first quarter, Joe Missoula decided that we're going to try and give James Harden a slightly different look and we're going to switch this action. They switch it with Grant Williams. Uh, This did not go well for Grant Williams. Uh, I have no idea why he was trying to put his chest out like that and trying to bump James Harden. He just completely whiffed the airmails. That is an easy floater for James Harden to get in the paint. Here we go again. James Harden here at about the 311 mark. We're about a quarter past where we were in the previous clip. This is the 311 mark of the second quarter. James Harden's going to get the ball. 
D'Anthony Melton, who is being guarded by Jason Tatum, is going to set a pure ghost screen where no point in any circumstance does he try and stop his momentum. He just goes through. And then coming from the other side, Paul Reed comes up and sets a ball screen right at the top. This is a pretty good screen from Reed. This might be the only example that I can really think of where he caught full body on a non-step-up screen in this game. He gets James Harden that little bit of separation, and because of it, Jason Tatum has to step up. Now, the problem here, if you'll see this from Boston, is I think that Jason Tatum does not quite realize, or is that Malcolm? That's actually Malcolm Brogdon. It's not Jason Tatum. What Malcolm Brogdon does not realize here is that he has Jalen Brown right behind him, and that is Jalen's man, Paul Reed. Jalen is essentially playing drop coverage here. Malcolm Brogdon just slides off of DeAnthony Melton here, thinking that it's his coverage for some reason. Really, Jalen Brown is right there. Jalen Brown is ready to accept the oncoming James Harden drive, and he's coming forward to try and stop a potential James Harden step back. This is a Malcolm Brogdon mistake here. Malcolm Brogdon slides off of DeAnthony Melton. DeAnthony Melton was enormous for Philadelphia in the first half. He makes five of six from three in this game. I believe that all five of those came in the first half. Might have been one came in the second half off the top of my head, but he was enormous in this game. He kept their offense alive and flowing uh, when James Harden particularly was off the court at times, it felt like. So an enormous, enormous shot there from DeAnthony Melton on a bit of a mistake there from Malcolm Brogdon. Here, again, I believe it's two possessions later, 240 mark of the second quarter. This is, again, just a little go screen into a step-up screen from Paul Reed. It's beautiful action. Here's James Harden snaking, slithering, driving past, and forcing Al Horford to engage. He makes Al Horford engage in this screening action, and it sets up Paul Reed for an easy bucket. A terrific pass there from James Harden to Paul Reed. Here we go again. Another play here. This is at right at the end of, I believe, the second quarter in this game. 21 seconds left in the half. James Harden, he's going to take just a regular ball screen from Tobias Harris. And again, this is something that you see a lot more in the second half. The Celtics gave James Harden the switch whenever he wanted it, it felt like. The only time they really didn't is when Rob Williams was on the court and they let Rob purely drop. They let James Harden dictate this coverage here. They're going to let Al Horford be stuck on an island with James Harden. And then for what I think is the only time this game and Boston fans can correct me if I'm wrong here, they actually send a double at James Harden. They actually trap him. They try and blitz him in some way. I don't think this was really preordained. I think this was just an improv for Marcus Smart here. Marcus Smart makes this decision to come off of his man and Harden recognizes it. He immediately hits the Anthony Mountain in the middle of the court. And because my, uh, Marcus Smart came off of his man and had pre-switched off of James Harden in that initial screening action, Tobias Harris is wide open. Absolutely wide open here. And this is a shot that Tobias Harris is going to make every time. I would hope that that did not scare off Boston from putting two on the ball. The fact that Marcus Smart had a late improvisational decision to come and put two on the ball and make James Harden beat them with passing. And he did it in that one circumstance. So the team did not do it moving forward. But here, 
we're getting into the third quarter now, seven minutes left in the third. What you're going to see here is this is kind of an ice that just turns into a switch against Al Horford. And Al Horford, I guess you're relatively happy to have this shot from Harden. It is a mid-range shot, I guess, but it's contested. It's fine. This is why you play ice in those circumstances, even if the ice, I think, did turn into just a pure switch there. But again, Harden is rolling at this point. I think that you're giving this up. And this is the prime example of giving up a switch too easily in my mind. You're going to see throughout the second half here, James Harden is dictating and he's asking guys to come up and set screens for him. He's telling guys who he wants to set screens and who he doesn't. Here, you're going to see him point. He's going to point. He's telling, I believe that is DeAnthony Melton there, who's being guarded by Sam Hauser, that he wants to be the guy. He wants him to be the guy to come up and set the screen. So Paul Reed runs through which sends, I believe that is either Derek White or Jason Tatum. I think it might be Jason Tatum through. And because he knows that the sick, that the Celtics are essentially switching one through four around, he knows that this is just going to be a switch. He knows that Sam Hauser is going to switch on to him. Sam Hauser does fine here, I guess. James Harden misses the shot. But this is not an advantageous matchup for Boston. This is not what you want. If you're the Boston Celtics, you do not want Sam Hauser on an island with James Harden. This is not an advantageous situation for you if you're the Celtics. He just happened to miss. But again, uh, you're going to see James Harden point here. He's asking for these specific things. He's asking for re real matchups here. And it's just a little bit too easy at 3.30 in the third quarter for him to get these shots. And this is a shot. This is a situation that would continue to play out throughout the game. And that's a real problem. So here I wanted to highlight this one because throughout this game, it felt like James Harden was very comfortable with Jalen Brown on him for whatever reason. It felt like the two matchups that he really wanted outside of the bigs were Malcolm Brogdon and Jalen Brown, the guys, he didn't really want Jason Tatum on him. He tried to avoid Marcus Smart. They tried to get Smart switched off of him whenever they could. And then he didn't really want Derek White in those moments either. He was very comfortable with Jalen Brown. Here he just beats Jalen Brown off the bounce with relative ease. This is a matchup he was very comfortable with. So here, that was at the 7.15 mark of the fourth quarter. This is going to be the next possession down at the 7.05 mark. What I kind of wanted to showcase here is that, again, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the screeners for the 76ers were not particularly good in this game. And James Harden still found a way to get loose. It kind of feels like Marcus Smart just kind of gets stuck in the mud there uh, and he can't actually recover. Whatever happened to his footwork there just kind of got him a little bit off balance and he got stuck. So here you're going to see a fake dribble handoff by P.J. Tucker. And instead of Al Horford, this is the one that actually kind of pissed me off a little bit. All of this is leading to my point of why in the world, if you are the Boston Celtics, why are you not blitzing the ball out of James Harden's hands every time? Your options here are we can let James Harden try and beat us by playing straight up or 
we can let PJ Tucker try and beat us. Or if it's Paul Reed trying to, you know, be the short roll guy, we can let Paul Reed try to beat us. There was never a point in this game where Boston decided we're going to try and blitz. We're going to try and put two on the ball as a strategic decision. And I think that's where the commu- that's where the breakdown is happening for me in terms of not understanding how Boston lost this game. This is like a fairly easy adjustment to me. You want to put two on the ball against James Harden in moments where they don't have Joel Embiid. Look on the court here. Tyrese Maxey isn't even on the court here, I believe. Like this, this is not a certain, or no, Tyrese is going to come around there. No, that is Jay, that's Jalen McDaniels. Yeah. So this is, this is not a circumstance. No, I'm sorry. Tyrese is in the corner there, but regardless, like you're comfortable if any one of Jalen McDaniels or PJ Tucker beats you on this possession, that's what you want if you're the Boston Celtics. And if you have to rotate out to Tyrese Maxey, Tyrese played a great game tonight. He was phenomenal in this game. Uh, he went for, uh, as I pull up the box score, uh, he went for 26, but he did it on 24 shots. It took him quite a while to get there. It took him a lot of opportunities to get there. James Harden dropped 45 on 30. And to me, I'm letting anybody beat, beat me but James. Especially in the fourth quarter, especially after we've seen what we've seen. I'm letting anybody beat me but James Harden at this point. And again, this is just an easy possession here for Al Horford to come up after this in trap. You want to come up here and trap, in my opinion. You want to get the ball out of James Harden's hands. You have Marcus Smart there, who's guarding Jalen McDaniels. If you're Al Horford here, you want to come up, you want to put two on the ball. P.J. Tucker's going to short roll, but that's where Marcus Smart is anyway. You're very comfortable if P.J. Tucker short rolls into that area to be the release valve, especially with five seconds left on the shot clock. Okay. Maybe P.J. Tucker hits Jalen McDaniels. By that point, you're going to have two seconds left on the shot clock. This is going to lead to a three from Jalen McDaniels in all likelihood if we play this out, if Al Horford had blitzed. Instead, he sits back, and that's a wide-open three for James Harden. That is a wide-open three for James Harden at 549. That is the exact kind of situational thing where it makes all the sense in the world to put two on the ball. And to get the ball out of James Harden's hands. For whatever reason, Joe Missoula and the Boston coaching staff chose not to do that. This one here comes at the end of the game. This is the 47 second mark. And this is kind of where I just want to get into another concern I have with Boston here moving forward. This is something we saw in the Atlanta series as well. For whatever reason, their late game offense has been a train wreck uh, throughout the course of the playoffs. And this is one where I can't really point to Missoula. this is one where I think this is more on the players. Uh, the players here kind of feel like they just don't want to take the shot. I mean, that's an opportunity. Tatum had an opportunity there. Brogdon had an opportunity there, and he throws it away to Tyrese Maxey. We can blame coaching as much as we want, but these guys have to be willing to just be the guy that takes it on their shoulders. And for whatever reason, late in games for Boston – it feels like they're in like paralysis by analysis mode where they're constantly trying to survey the court and make the right pass more than anything. The Celtics are not doing that throughout the course of this playoff run. Someone needs to take it on. It probably needs to be Jason Tatum at the end of the day or Jalen Brown. 
but it feels like they have had a lot of big turnovers in big spots uh, in this game and in this playoffs. So here, this is the final possession for the Philadelphia 76ers. What you're going to see here, again, this is like a fine screen, I guess, from P.J. Tucker, but Marcus Smart spins around it with ease. Like Mar- Marcus Smart gets around this screen well to where if James Harden, if he wants to recover onto James, he's there. That is that is comfortable. And again, if they want to put two on the ball here, that's what I would do. I would put two on the ball. I would say, let's go. Let's give the ball to P.J. Tucker in that short roll area. We're going to have probably the low man uh, rotate up, which in this case I think was Jalen Brown. We have same side helper there which means if they kick it out to george niang we're going to be able to help on to george you have to assume that tyrese is then going to pull up uh to the wing but i'm comfortable with making my team x out there if i'm a coach i am fine with making malcolm brogdon shoot down to the corner if it's niang or Stay home on Tyrese Maxey to start the possession, but shoot down to the corner if they end up kicking it out to George Niang. And you know what? If George Niang beats me on an open three because P.J. Tucker makes a high-level passing read out of short rolls, something he's done throughout his career, undeniably, that's something I'm more than comfortable with. It's absolutely something I'm more than comfortable with. Here, James Harden is just ISOed on Al Horford. And I think Al Horford did as well as he possibly could have on this possession. I think Al Horford did a great job here, but you know what? That's kind of like a side angle contest because Harden gets to the sidestep. And when Harden gets to that sidestep, it's kind of curtains. And then the final possession here for Boston, what you're going to see again, just a total breakdown, a total breakdown where there's no way that they want Marcus Smart to be taking the shot. Like, I just refuse to believe that. You have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I cannot imagine that the goal here is to get Marcus Smart isolated on the block with James Harden because James Harden's actually a pretty good post defender, first and foremost. I'm actually, like, not entirely sure what the goal is here in terms of what they're running. I was thinking originally it was almost like, I believe that's Derek White was going to be like slipping to the basket in essentially like a double pin down. And then they were going to have Jalen Brown come up and try and get that ball. But I, I actually am like not totally sure what the play was here. I don't, and maybe Marcus didn't let it develop enough uh, to where it was something that was happening. I'm like, not, not a hundred percent sure there. And that's Jason Tatum. that would be cutting to the basket, by the way, not, uh, not Derek White. I'm just very confused on the process here, I guess. I'm not totally sure what the goal was. It it was a bizarre performance from the Boston coaching staff here, in my opinion. I I just don't, don't know what their goal was. I don't know what their plan was. And really the only thing that you had to do in this game was make life harder for James Harden. If you do that, it's going to be very difficult for Philadelphia to create shots and to create positive opportunities. And 
something sharp says in the YouTube comments here, Malcolm Brogdon said after the game, he thought they doubled Harden too much, which I thought was weird because I didn't remember them doubling much. I mean, maybe they did off the ball. I, I don't really think they did, if I'm being completely honest. But in the moments that mattered, they very, very rarely doubled him on the ball. Uh, they very rarely tried to get him away from the ball in those moments. So that feels odd to me that he said that. Uh, Malcolm is a very, 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 very intelligent person who is smarter than I am. So maybe he has something I would have to go back and watch the tape again. I will say I've watched this game twice now and I don't really see it. I I had to watch this game twice because I was like, so staggered by what occurred. I I could not possibly believe that the Celtics lost a game without Joel Embiid playing for Philadelphia where they shot 59, 39, 94 in the game. Uh, And look, there were a few, other factors, I think that Philadelphia played an incredibly clean game. They only turned the ball over six times. Do you know why they only turned the ball over six times? Because James Harden had the ball in his hands all the time, and you didn't pressure him. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty staggering. That was a very bizarre Boston Celtics performance. Uh, and, and just strategically, they had one job, and they didn't do it. Uh, they didn't really, I, I don't even, I almost don't blame the players there. Like the players have to execute defensively, obviously. But like, I think that there were a lot of times where they were pretty okay in terms of the execution. It felt like to me that there was just not the right strategy being employed by the coaching staff in ball screen defense in order to make James Harden's life more difficult. And I put this loss kind of on that coaching staff. I, 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 it's hard for me to watch their late game offense and it's hard for me to watch what I saw in terms of their schematics and not put that loss at anyone other than Joe Missoula and company's feet. Uh, that, that was a, that was a weird one. It was a weird game. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be back and we're going to talk a little bit about the Denver nuggets beating the Phoenix suns. Okay, we're back. This is a very weird series so far to talk about with Denver and Phoenix because now we have one of the big four for Phoenix out in Chris Paul. And we're at the point now with Chris Paul, who now has groin tightness, where if your roster structure is going to look like this, where you have four dudes who are unbelievable, you have two of the best 10 players in the NBA, you know, and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. You have DeAndre Ayton, who is certainly something. And who I thought played relatively okay tonight. Despite the fact that Jokic went off. And you have Chris Paul. Without much depth, and that depth will change in the offseason. They will go out and they will find guys. Having said that, the new CBA is going to make that a little bit more difficult in terms of some of the structures in play and some of the uh, more stringent roster building difficulties that a team over the second apron will face. It's going to be harder for you 
when you don't have a full mid-level exception. It's going to be harder for you when you don't have any sort of mid-level exception. Harder to build a team now with the new CBA. To me, if this series continues to go the way it is, and Phoenix was playing certainly better in the third quarter, uh, they took a about a six point lead. If I remember correctly, I remember being 64 to 58 at one point in the third quarter Phoenix felt like Chris Paul was certainly playing better, but it feels like it's been a while now since Chris Paul has been able to stay healthy in a playoff series. And if you're going to have this kind of roster build with the new CBA, I think there is a reasonable question to ask depending on this injury. And it pains me to say, because I love Chris Paul. Like, I know that Chris Paul gets a lot of shit, but there's nobody who has been as surgical at dissecting defenses over the course of the last 20 years from the point guard position than Chris Paul. He's an incredible basketball player to watch. His brain is unlike anything I feel like we've seen from the point guard position in 20 years. I do wonder if Chris Paul can't stay healthy, if that's a move they have to consider making. Do you have to look to move Chris Paul for something else? Is there a team that will value Chris Paul as a culture builder, a resetter, someone that will be able to bring you something different than what you currently have in the backcourt? I would think someone would love that. And we're still a long way away from the Phoenix Suns being eliminated. But if I was a Suns fan, I'd be asking that question right now. If Chris Paul is diminished for the rest of this series. I think it's going to be very difficult for Denver to lose. And I think it's going to be very difficult for Phoenix to win. If you can't play, I I don't know how they win, to be honest. It would require Herculean performances from Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. And Herculean performances happen from those two. Those guys are unbelievable. But I think that is a real question to be asking right now is... If these soft tissue injuries, which have been recurrent for Chris Paul over the course of the last, feels like five years, let's go with five years. Can you trust him with this core moving forward? I don't know the answer to that. I think that the Suns uh, will have to do some soul searching, but we're a long way away from that still, but we're not that far away from it. And I think a big reason why we're not that far away from it is because of the way these two teams match up. And I think what I undervalued coming into this series, I kind of thought Phoenix would win this series. I thought it would be tight. I thought it'd be a seven game series. I thought it'd be really, really close. I did think that Denver had some real schematic advantages, but ultimately I kind of thought that the wing talent would win the day and that Kevin Durant and Devin Booker would be the difference in this series. I'm not so sure now. And the reason for that is the way that these two match up when Phoenix has the ball offensively and when Denver is on defense. The thing that I feel like Denver has struggled with most this season is what happens when teams can put real rim pressure on you. Denver's defense is very good. It is very good schematically and in terms of rotation especially when they're playing flatter defensive ball screen coverages with Nikola Jokic. Having said that, 
Denver also gave up 67% around the basket this season, which was sixth worst in the NBA. The teams that were worse than them were the Orlando Magic, not a playoff team. The New Orleans Pelicans, not a playoff team. The Oklahoma City Thunder, not a playoff team. Houston, not a playoff team. And Miami, certainly a great playoff team, but a team that has an undersized center in Bam Adebayo and gets by with just like all sorts of defensive shit thrown at the wall. They will blitz you. They will play zone. They will play a number of different defensive strategies. They will switch you. Bam Adebayo will be out guarding your best player a lot of the time if you try and put him in a ball screen. There's a lot that Miami does that is a little bit different schematically than a normal defense. Denver gave up 67% at the rim. The two teams below them, the Washington Wizards, didn't make the playoffs. The Toronto Raptors didn't make the playoffs. Like, it is rare for a team to not be able to protect the rim to be as successful as they have been. And Denver this year has struggled to protect the rim. And I think in part that is because of Nikola Jokic. It's also worth noting that those numbers tended to balloon a little bit later in the year as Denver played more of a drop coverage defense. And I don't know why they did that. It was very strange to see them play drop coverage later in the season because Nikola Jokic is not great in drop coverage defense. He is not great at kind of accepting ball handlers and getting his chest out in front of you and being able to dissuade or contest those guys in those settings. Uh, It becomes a little bit too easy in my opinion, for athletic guards to be able to get all the way to the basket. And we saw this in the first series. Anthony Edwards averaged 32 points and five assists on a 60 true shooting percentage over the course of that series by putting pressure on the rim. He only shot 34.9% from three in that series. How Anthony Edwards was successful was attacking the rim. By the way, Rudy Gobert also had a pretty good series offensively in that series. He had something like four offensive rebounds a game, averaged 15 points. Anytime you're getting 15 points from Rudy Gobert on average, you're doing pretty well. And in part, it's because of the rim pressure that Minnesota was getting. Minnesota's problem in that series was not Anthony Edwards. It really wasn't Rudy Gobert either. It was literally everybody else on the roster, in my opinion including Carl Anthony Towns. So fast forward to the Western Conference semifinals now, where Phoenix is playing Denver. What I think I underestimated is just how little pressure Phoenix puts on the rim. And this has been a problem since the trade deadline. If you look since the trade deadline, the Suns only average 17.6 attempts in the restricted area in those games since the trade deadline. The average number of attempts in the restricted area is 26. So far, the Suns are only averaging about 45 points in the paint this series. They averaged 46 on the season. So again, this is not all that different. They only averaged 45.1 in the restricted area after the trade deadline. So again, this is mid-range team. This is mid-range gunner team. This is everything that people say about the Phoenix Suns is true. 
But the way to beat Denver is not that. The way to beat Denver is to put pressure on the rim. And I think what I underestimated was that Phoenix is just not going to be willing to do that or is not quite capable of being able to do that. I thought Devin Booker would be able to do that. He hasn't really done it yet. He's been a little bit more comfortable settling in the mid-range. Tonight, Phoenix took 14 shots in the restricted area. Took 14. Good friend of the program here, Jason Timp. We were texting, you know, about this before I went live, and he brought up to me, Nikola Jokic himself made 14 shots in the paint tonight. Nikola Jokic made 14 shots in the paint. Phoenix took 14 attempts in the restricted area tonight. That is crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And go listen to Jason's podcast. Go listen to Hoops Tonight over on the Volume Network. Jason's the best. But you see where this is a problem if Phoenix can't actually take advantage of what Denver's biggest weakness is defensively. And part of this sounds like I'm being a bit too cavalier about what Denver has done so far in the series defensively, and I don't mean to be. I think Denver has been absolutely spectacular defensively in these two games. And we're going to break down some tape and I'm going to show you why Denver has been so good defensively in this series. I think across the board, there is, I have very little to complain about in terms of how they have executed and in terms of the way that they've mixed and matched coverages and in terms of some of their strategic ideals that they've utilized that will break down in the tape as I pull it up right now. I think Denver has been, absolutely spectacular defensively in the series. I just don't think Phoenix is putting a lot of pressure on Denver right now. And that's the problem. So here, this is just in the second quarter, about the seven minute mark of the second quarter. You're going to see here, Denver playing more at the level of the screen, playing flatter ball screen coverage with Nikola Jokic here. Now, the reason you do this against Kevin Durant is that, as we've seen throughout the series, Kevin Durant has not been awesome as a passer. I think Kevin has improved drastically as a passer throughout the course of his career, but it seems like they're still a little bit missing, and it's probably because he just got to Phoenix a few months ago, and he probably is still adjusting to some of the reads. He's still adjusting to some of the sets. Even basketball geniuses like Kevin Durant, it takes time. It takes continuity for some of this to really work at the highest level that it can. So here you're going to see Nikola Jokic, two on the ball. The easy pass here is the short roll pass, right? And he finds it to DeAndre Ayton. But what you're going to notice here is look who's down there. Look at the help defense. Look at the weak side rotation coming over from Jeff Green. Low man comes over, strips the ball from DeAndre Ayton, and they get the ball. I think that what you're going to see more than anything else as we go through tape here with Denver, their help side rotations have been absolutely immaculate in this series every single moment save for maybe the third quarter tonight where i thought that there were some issues that came up denver's rotations have been absolutely on point this results in a turnover fast break opportunity 106 here in the second quarter now what you're going to see here is 
This time with Chris Paul, Nikola Jokic is in drop. A lot of the time with Chris Paul, they're playing drop. If it's Devin Booker, they tend to play flatter. If it's Kevin Durant, they tend to play a little bit flatter, although I think they have mixed and matched a little bit more against Durant than Devin Booker. So here what you're going to see is good help defense. They're crowding Chris Paul here and drop, making it so that it's harder for Chris Paul to get to the rim. And this is something Denver deserves credit for. They have made it harder directly out of ball screens for Phoenix to get paint touches. Now, what you're going to see here is the antithesis of this. Paul hits Devin Booker, and this is a long closeout for Jamal Murray. He does okay being able to stay on Devin Booker's hip here when he drives baseline. But this is a prime example of what I'm talking about. Devin Booker has to be willing to attack Nikola Jokic here. The worst case scenario, if you're as good as Devin Booker is, and Devin Booker is one of the best players in the NBA, you should hopefully be able to draw a foul there on Denver's best player. The best case scenario is you just finish at the basket, which is something that Nikola Jokic tends to allow you to do. As you'll see here, one thing I kind of noticed previously with the Nuggets is that Nikola Jokic tends to try to draw charges. Look at him. Look at him there. He's getting ready for it. You can see the hands. He has the little, has his hands getting ready to cover his nuts just a little bit. And then he realizes that Booker is jump stopping into this shot instead. And he just kind of head fakes toward him. This is a, this is an absolute prime example of what I'm talking about. The Suns have to be willing to attack the basket in this series because that's where their advantage could lie defensively on Denver. Denver has a lot of long rangey guys, Aaron Gordon, Contavious Caldwell Pope, even Jamal Murray has been quite good in this series defensively. In my opinion, they will cover ground. And that's before we get to the bench guys, which we're going to see a lot of in the next set of clips. Christian Brown has been very good defensively in the series. Bruce Brown has been very good defensively. They have a lot of dudes who can cover a lot of ground defensively. And Nikola Jokic, by the way, in flatter ball screen coverages, tends to be pretty good. It's when you put him in drop that he's really bad. This is a prime example of an opportunity for Phoenix where they have to be able to put pressure on the basket, in my opinion. So here, we're going to go to the next possession here. This is 343 left in the third. After Phoenix has gone on this little run, taking this 64-58 to lead, and this is where campaign is in. I believe that this is the possession just right after Chris Paul got hurt, maybe. Uh, in here, what you're going to see is against the point guards, they're going to play drop again. And just look at how terrific the rotations are again here from Denver. Christian Brown gets over the top of the screen, gets back into the play, gets onto campaign's hip. Look at this. Aaron Gordon's there waiting. Forces by getting onto Kevin Durant's hip there, forces Kevin Durant away from the basket and into the help where Christian Brown is. Christian Brown just steps up and takes a charge. And while we are anti-charge on this podcast, I will respect a good defensive play where it happens based on the rules. Christian Brown did a great job here defensively stepping up and taking that charge. Here we go. 248 left in the third. Again, this is going to be Devin Booker 
sort of just like a little little like ghost screen uh, you know stagger almost you could make a case where damian lee's coming through on the ghost screen and then we're gonna see bismack come up and set this screen here at the top not a great screen devin can't get free at all but the key here is that kevin duran is in the weak side and you should be able to hit this pass and you should be able to see kevin durant be able to get a relatively open shot if denver at all screws up defensively in terms of its rotations but look at how on point they are. That is a perfect, pristine X out from Jeff Green going to the corner from the wing and Christian Brown shooting up to the top of the key in order to take care of Damian Lee as a potential uh, ball reversal from Kevin Durant. Absolutely pristine help side defense. This is the second defensive possession in the fourth quarter after Mike Malone clearly got into the Nuggets' ass in between the third and fourth quarters after they gave up those 31 points in the third. 11 minutes, 12 seconds left in the fourth quarter. What we're going to see here, Devin's going to get the ball and they're going to try and empty out the side. And I love what Jamal Murray does here. Jamal Murray is kind of half stunting. He's like, he's letting Devin Booker know that he's there the whole time. Devin goes up like he's going to shoot and he pump fakes. And then look, Aaron Gordon's right there rotationally. He's ready. He's willing. He's going to make life a little bit harder for Devin Booker. Again, in my opinion, I think Devin Booker has to be willing to try and like Euro step around Aaron Gordon there and try and finish over Aaron Gordon, who doesn't have the longest arms and is, uh, not the world's best rim protector, but instead he kicks out. And again, look at the pristine X out here. Jeff Green goes from the elbow down to the corner. Christian Brown flies out to the top of the key. And it's just perfect. They block the shot from campaign. Beautiful, beautiful block from Jeff Green. And it's perfect. This is This is exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about perfect help side defense. Everybody is in a string. Everybody's on a line. Everybody is just ready and willing to do their job. I absolutely love this. So here, Kevin Durant on Christian Brown. You would think this is a mismatch. Jeff Green's kind of shaded over. He's a little bit worried about his man, but he's trying to be there and help. He stunts over. Kevin Durant hits that smart kick out to campaign. After the stunt, I think campaign just needs to be willing to shoot that ball. Personally, he has to be willing to shoot it directly off the catch. I think right here, but again, just a really, really good help rotation. You're going to see Jamal Murray come up from the corner and you're going to see Jeff green X out to the corner where Jamal was on a string, perfect help side defense. And eventually campaign takes the terrible shot, not in rhythm. Ball goes out of bounds. This is all perfect. This is all what you're supposed to do. This is all exactly what Mike Malone wants from his defense here. You're going to see here with Devin Booker, they're playing flatter with Nikola Jokic. And something that Denver did in the fourth quarter, especially in the second half of the fourth quarter, they put Nikola Jokic on Josh Okogie. They basically said, if you're going to involve Nikola Jokic in ball screens, which makes sense because Nikola Jokic 
can struggle a little bit in that capacity from time to time. We're going to play flat and we're going to make you hit Josh Okogie as the release valve. And we're going to make Josh Okogie beat our help defense, be it via pass or be it via shot. This is essentially what Boston in the first game did not do. They did not in this Devin Booker is a very similar player in this scenario to James Harden, probably a little bit worse in ball screens if we're being honest than James Harden when he's getting to orchestrate everything and run the show. Here, Denver actually does it. Denver forces the ball out of Devin Booker's hands, or they're going to make him get into a spot where he's isolated again on his man, and we're going to be able to stop him. So this is the 530 mark of the fourth quarter, and Devin Booker is just going to have to dance. He's going to try and dance around Contavious Caldwell Pope, and that's just a contested shot that still... Not all the way at the basket. If you look, this is a shot outside of the restricted area again. And look, Devin Booker is trying to bully. He's like backing his way in. But this is what the Denver defense has done really, really well throughout the course of this series. And I think they deserve an immense amount of credit for it. So here, dribble handoff into a screen. They're trying to get a switch with Jokic on to Devin Booker, in my opinion here. They don't bite. Here we go again. They're going to have Josh Kogi come up. He's going to set like a little slip screen into the short roll area. They put two on the ball with Jokic, play a little bit more at the level. Jokic just, you know, slowly saunters back and recovers. Again, though, that's just like not a, it's not a difficult opportunity uh, for Denver to stay in front of here. So apologies, I hit the wrong button there. So as we're going to see, we're going to see Nikola Jokic. He is going to just be at the level. He's going to be ready. I personally think that Devin Booker has to be a little bit more willing to attack in those circumstances than what he's been so far. But this is just a settle. And they're going to be happy to contest settled three-point jumpers from Devin Booker. Here we go again. Kevin Durant playing a little bit more flat at the level with Nikola Jokic. Kevin Durant is going to hit that short roll after the blitz in the corner there uh, on the wing. He's going to hit Josh Kogi. Josh Kogi has to be willing to do something here. There's just no excuse. He has to be willing to, in some way, shape, or form, make a quick decision. It can't just be, I'm going to stand here for X number of minutes. I'm going to pump fake because I don't want to take the shot. It needs to be kick out to Damian Lee. It needs to be, pump fake slip pass into DeAndre Ayton. It can't just be, I'm going to hold the ball for four seconds and then eventually just restart the offense out. That's not a great opportunity. It's not in rhythm. I know Kevin Durant is a great shooter, but none of this really works. And again, it's in part because of the intelligent adjustment that Mike Malone made and Nikola Jokic made to have him guard Josh Okoge. This is really smart. This is just really, really sharp from Denver, in my opinion. You see this, the 340 mark of the fourth. I loved it. I loved everything that Denver did in this game defensively. I think it was super, super crisp. It was smart. It showed a real plan. It showed a real understanding of the assignment in terms of what Phoenix can and can't do and what they're not doing. And I think that they hold all the cards moving forward in this series. 
Denver, I think, holds absolutely all the cards. They're up 2-0. But I also think that, in reality, Phoenix is in trouble. Phoenix is in trouble schematically. Phoenix is in trouble if they're not going to be willing to play as many high ball screen sets. They're in trouble if they're not going to be willing to get more ball movement. I think Phoenix's ball movement throughout the course of the series has been quite poor. Hasn't been good enough. You look at the Suns tonight. Suns made 38 shots. They assisted on 23 of them, but six of those were from Chris Paul. And while Chris Paul got cooking in the third quarter, I would imagine that a lot of those assists came in the third. So yeah, more ball movement is necessary. And I don't know if they can get that ball movement if Chris Paul's off the court. If Chris Paul is out, we'll see. This is all speculation at this point, it feels like. If Chris Paul is out, they're in real trouble because they're not going to get that ball movement. They're going to be forced into playing more campaign, Josh Kogi, you know, Tory Craig, Damian Lee minutes. And you have two non-entities offensively on the court, not just one the teams can sag off of. Phoenix is in a tough spot without Chris Paul. I'm always willing to give it the benefit of the doubt in terms of the home team winning the first two games. I think that we have to in this case, especially in Denver, where teams play at altitude, and that can be a bit of an adjustment. But Denver holds all the cards now moving forward, especially if Chris Paul is at less than 100%. Uh, Really, really interesting. Really great work from Denver defensively, but really, really difficult to see a road for Phoenix if Chris Paul is out. Uh, The road for Phoenix, in my opinion, is you try and run more ball screen actions. You try and get Devin Booker on the ball playing point and letting him dictate the action. Try and get more rim pressure. Try and back cut Nikola Jokic on some of those actions where he's playing flatter at the level. Try and get guys toward the rim. That is what you need to do if you're Phoenix. That's the best way to derive offense against the Denver Nuggets. It's been shown throughout the year. It's the reality of the situation. If they don't do that, they're going to lose. They need to get more pressure at the rim. That's that's it. That's all I've got. Those are your two games tonight, folks. That's actually all I've got. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back tomorrow night with Mark Schindler to talk about the games that occur. We're going to get Warriors-Lakers game one, and we're going to get Knicks Heat game two. Two great games, two super exciting games to talk about. We're going to get to see the first set of games from this terrific Lakers-Warriors series. And we're going to get to see what adjustments the Knicks make off of what Miami did to them defensively in game one, which, by the way, I talked about that yesterday. Go watch the show with Spins. We talked about that the entire middle part of the show. It was super fun. Go back. Go subscribe to the channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Fassini. Go subscribe on the podcast feed, uh, Game Theory Podcast, over on Apple, Spotify, Google Play. But the best way to do it, given all these tape breakdowns, is definitely going to be on the YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button. We will be back both today, tomorrow, and the following day when Spins and I do a 2023 mock draft.
Keep it locked here. Until next time, we'll talk soon.